do you wait for them to come to you just for advice for stuff or do you do you kind of impart it on them naturally kidding I, I lay it on them with a trowel <laughs> arise my sons awake take the destiny that is yours your name is being called unto the heavens take your destiny what is yours rise up my sons I'm here on a not very sunny California day talking to you guys. Oh, beautiful, man. I uh, am, I, I, I'm, I'm, am I wrong or right? Did you do Spyro the Dragon? I did indeed. In fact, yes. there's a whole, there's a generation of, of folks out there for whom I'm the guy who did Spyro. And hey, you know, you used to play in a band? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It is crazy. I didn't and even that, that generation, by the way, includes my kids. And in fact, <laughs> uh, that the Copeland found family could be found. Uh, when was it in the, I, I can't remember within the nineties, I guess, or the, uh, the, uh, the thousands. Anyway, we'd be there yeah. with, you know, eldest son on the controls and all the siblings turn left, turn right, jump, you know, pick up the thing. <laughs> and uh, of course I'm there. It's like a fifties television show with the family all gathered around <laughs> listening to my music. Oh, Heaven beautiful. on earth. Wonderful. Amazing. That is wonderful, right? That you've influenced not only in Spyro the Dragon, but also in that band you used to play in so many generations <laughs> of people. It is. It's crazy. I mean, obviously, like I, I was just I was just, you know, you know, I Google every guest people come on or whatever. I'm looking through your whole career and obviously the police. And I literally saw the Spyro the Dragon thing. And I was like, there's no way. I'm like, I, I love that game. And I was like, there's no way. And I'm so happy to hear that you did it. And your uh, family got to enjoy it. Well, it was an easy, fun game. Nobody dies. Not even the well, you know, he sort of goes up in a puff of smoke, but he shows up again. Yeah, and yeah. Like, uh, it was really good fun, as yeah. a matter of fact. I did it for four years, and every summer I would do the equivalent of a quadruple album of backing tracks. Wow. And I discovered that the more I did under the more pressure, actually, the, the better the music is, because you're in too much of a hurry to judge yourself or anything. You just churn them and burn them. And then years later, I look back and dang that was a good tune did you feel like over the pandemic you felt more creative though because of the freedom you had of maybe to do more stuff well uh that's the opposite of the pressure yeah um but the pandemic meant that the phone didn't ring and while mindful of all kinds of disaster out there people losing their lives their livelihoods uh just the change and everything kids stuck at home i mean it was a disaster all the way around but a very few people kind of got away with it. Uh, yeah. Writers with their typewriters uh, up in northern Vermont or something. And me in my studio with my computer able to really work hard and be creative while outside all kinds of misery is going on. And I'm yeah. very, you know, I, I was very grateful to the new uh, anointed heroes of the time, which were the delivery guys. Yeah, you know they get you know, no nobody writes symphonies about the delivery guys, but boy, I sure felt one in my heart every time they would show up with yeah. sustenance. That's a great and way to put it. Frontline workers of every kind yeah. suddenly became the heroes of our time. That's a good thing. Absolutely, and I like that they. I mean, that was the thing though. They would call them essential employees, which is like absolutely. When you think about it, you're like they're always essential. They're there for you no matter what. They're working the 24 hour stores. They're pumping gas. They're doing all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you know, now they're being recognized because the rest of us can't actually do anything anymore. And you're just like, oh, my God, they were always there for you, you know? Yeah, well, they weren't under threat of plague. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. Let all people back. experience the glory. <laughs> <laughs> and you just joined Twitter for the first time and got a million views. Yeah. And you're loving it. Well, actually, uh, I haven't fully switched over. I'm mostly... I'm on Instagram. I, you know, I got a crew who calibrate it. They figure out, you know, I create the images just as I go along. I take pictures of stuff. I got pictures of stuff and they send me, okay, on Thursday, this, and I, and I think up the, the captions. 
which mm -hmm. is good fun, a funny little caption for everything. And then I sit back and watch. And on Thursday, oh, let's see, what did I post today? Uh, <laughs> but mainly, more than watching what I posted today, I'm, I, I go past all my friends and see what they're all up to. Fine, fine, fine. Then I get to the stuff they start sending me. And they uh, have me figured out. They've stopped sending me the 12-year-old drummers, finally, because I never click on those. Uh, but for a while, uh, obviously, I'm interested in every 12-year-old drummer. Personally, I believe they should all be strangled at birth. <laughs> because they're coming for my dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I love them all. They should not be strangled. They should be nurtured. Yes. Um, but I, I've ended up on... Um, uh, crazy motorcycle tricks, people jumping off of skyscrapers, hair-raising events and pratfalls, of course, some of which look painful. Um, mm -hmm. motorcycle, uh, motorboats crashing into the harbor. Love that stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> crazy dances. I get a lot of strange European guys and women in, in bow ties and kind of 50s look doing utterly unsexy, but kind of riveting dances. You would never <laughs> score on the disco dance floor with this kind of stuff, but it's kind of watchable with its, watch, watchable with its goofy charm. Yeah, I'm yeah. A sucker. And of course I get your lions chasing after deer, half of which get away. Um, <laughs> For some reason, I get a lot of that too. I, I must've watched one video with animals and now it, it my everything is animals. This one fighting that one, alligator versus bison. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I saw that one, all 500 of those ones. Sometimes <laughs> the, the bison gets away and kicks the alligator in the face. Yes. Sometimes yeah. the bison yeah. goes under. Absolutely. Yeah. I my, my friend screwed me royally because he sent me one. You know, you know when somebody sends you one thing, the algorithm picks up on it? Yeah. He sent me one. Uh, he's, a, he's a paramedic. So he's like, oh, man. He's like, you got to follow this paramedics page. And it's the most gruesome, ah. you, know, you know, like knee popping, whatever. But I clicked on it. And then I was like, oh, God, no, I don't want to see this up. And now, yeah, like, every other, it. yeah, every other photo is like this, you know, nail popping off, like, hand slit in the thing. Ah. And I, I just message him. And I'm like, why would you do this to me? Really? You can't unsee that stuff. Yeah, it's really bad. You know what the other trend is? And I don't know if you fall into this one either. It's people on airplanes, but who are having like engine failure or or what? Like that's like uh, that man. That's an adrenaline rush. That sounds like, great. I, I want to see some of that. Hey, I get it. I mean, I understand. And I fly a lot. Yeah, you one of those things you can't avoid when you're traveling. Like I'm always, yeah. even when I'm in the air, I'm like, well, you know, they got out of it though. It's all uplifting. I've never seen anybody post. A crash well, but they're always it's like it's better than tv you know it, you know we, we we watch our show right now we're watching pam and tommy best oh, television ever absolutely that man is i i happen to know tommy as oh. a really sweet guy and he's yes. you know it, like when drummers gather together he's always there as mm -hmm. one of the he's just a great fun guy he's taught me all kinds of cool stick twirling tricks you oh, know nice. and yeah. uh so when the show came out i was wondering if they captured his sweet nature in the first episode holy shit <laughs> that's who he is my <laughs> god and i immediately uh, that, that, that is now my role model i'm gonna be that guy <laughs> are you also gonna have the uh the talking uh <laughs> you know what well uh i am gonna get me uh, i you know I do wear Speedos when I swim, free of the male burka that is the uh, California bathing suit, but he's taking it to the next level. I got to get me a G-string. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's a wild show, man. It's intense. And I, and I, I think we're like two or three episodes into it, and oh. he's already turned into a nice guy. Yes, For the yes, first yes. episode, you're wondering, how would he sign off on that? But now uh, I know. Yeah, of course, yeah. we fall in love with him. And this is more oh, of the yeah. Tommy that I know and love. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I know. They did a really good job with it. I was a little worried about it, but they, they knocked it out of the park. By the way, by the way, the actor got the stick twirling thing better than I did. I mean, oh. he's obviously a, a, a quicker study. I was just gonna you know? say I'm blanking on his name, which happens every episode. But I can't. But he's he was phenomenal. He's really good at it. Yeah, they both are. They both. Yeah, are really yeah, good. they're both great. Look like him too, which is an insane. I don't know how they do yeah, that. His I mean, face is a little longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, I wanted just, to know. I want okay. to know. Have you always like had a passion for the drums? Like as a kid, did you grow yeah. up saying I want yeah. to be well, a musician? Well, drums and guitar. Actually, I can never make up my mind when I'm walking down listening to Jimi Hendrix. My fantasy was all schizophrenic am i the guitarist or am i the drummer and could i be playing that on guitar like 
drumming with my feet or something that nah, just never worked out you know <laughs> yeah. when i imagine the you know the, the the girl that i was you know uh, obsessed with in high school you know and i'm there on stage am i playing guitar or am i playing drums <laughs> it was always a problem i was better at drums but dang it i should have been a guitarist too uh, right. and that was it but you went straight into music when you were younger you didn't have any did you have any other passions I kept trying to do something else, but it kept pulling me back. You know, I was <laughs> editor of a magazine. I started a magazine uh, when I was in no. college. I was a radio jock. I roadies. I'm, you know, basically I'm a glorified roadie. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but the music thing just kept pulling me back. Were your parents cool with it or were they, did they give you a hard time? Oh yeah. My father was a jazz musician. Um, <laughs> and he, the minute I was the last of four kids and he filled the house with instruments, hoping that they would pick up on them. Uh, none of them did until I came along and I was just banging stuff all the time. Well, maybe he's a drummer. And so immediately got me drum lessons and proper technique from the age of, I don't know, 10 or something. Wow. So I started pretty young uh, with encouragement by my father. Now, at oh, the time, we were living in uh, the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Beirut, Lebanon. Wow. And um, as soon as my father sussed out that I kind of was kind of good at it, he got me an, uh, a teacher, an Armenian um, drummer in a strip joint or something. He taught me how to set <laughs> drums and hold my sticks properly and how to go ting, ting, ti ting. Uh, so when I grew up, I was kind of immune, shall we say, to jazz because wow. that's how I was raised up. Nice. Wow. So you, you have good memories of Lebanon, you'd say? Absolutely. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was the Switzerland of the Middle East. Did um, uh, more like the Rio de Janeiro of the Middle East. Uh, and that's where I played in my first band at the American Embassy ah, Beach Club. I went nice. to AC, American Community School there. Um, and yeah, my, my, my teen, early teens were, were in uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Wow. What was your in fact, when band? I got to, I, uh, from there, when my father was in the CIA, and when it got kind of hot for him politically, his best friend, an English spy, Harry uh, Kim Philby, turned out to be a Russian double agent and one night jumped on a ship and split and suddenly everything went crazy. And he sent me off to boarding school in England. Oh uh, my God. Completed my adolescent years. Wow. But when I got to England, I didn't realize that half the words in my vocabulary were Arabic, weren't even English words, you know, Fuddal, um, give me, you know, I've, I've sort of forgotten a lot of it by now, but I, it took me a while to figure out which were the English words and which were the not English words. Right. When he wow. sent you off to boarding school, though, did you understand? Like, did he explain to you what was going on? Did you feel like you were, like, worried about your parents, your dad? No. Or? Okay. No, because uh, it was all quite secretive. Right. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. And so I ended up in darkest Somerset, England, in a boarding school out there. Wow. Did he ever, when was the, do you remember him eventually telling you? And were you like, holy shit? Or, like, what was your reaction? Well, he wrote a book. He was, he, he later became known as the most public secret agent ever. <laughs> uh, my father was very garrulous, very outgoing, very uh, sociable. Wow. A great storyteller. Mm. Uh, and when I was in college in San Diego, that's when his book came out. And on the line, because there was always whispers. But then again, mm -hmm. everybody in Beirut was a spy. And uh, one day my, my older brother came home and he says, Dad, are you a spy? And my father answered, this is the family legend. My father says, <laughs> who wants to know? <laughs> <laughs> when I was in college, his book came out, and there, right there on the liner notes was uh, Miles Copeland, yada, yada, yada. Oh, holy crap, it's true. Oh, my God. I thought wow. it was kind of cool. But the politics of that day were such that it was really uncool with all my friends. My God, how could you love your father? How could you, you know, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, if you met my father, you would understand. Yeah, yeah, he seemed like a great guy. My mother used to say you could always tell a spy at the cocktail party by the one who's talking the most bullshit. <laughs> that's a great point too well because point. they're not going to talk about anything serious right right so they just talk rubbish yeah yep. it's crazy though man i mean i can't imagine that I... well my father would have bridled he wasn't a spy he was a cia operator okay um their job was to uh prop up the dictators that they installed when i was born in virginia in langley virginia which is a suburb of the cia headquarters mm -hmm. um my father was away on business in Cairo installing dictator Gamal Abdel Nasser. And from the years after, and basically they were keeping uh, the Middle East stable. Mm -hmm. They had no tradition there 
or very, very um, nascent tradition of democracy. And so the main thing that everyone wanted was stability. Um, and the, the mostly the, the, the people in those lands, their attitude, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Um, and so Gamal Abdel Nasser was actually pretty good as dictators went for uh, Egypt. And wow. then later in, um, in Syria, he also, there were shenanigans in Syria uh, before I was born. Um, and it was mainly the, the Ruskies, the Soviets, their mission was to shake up our oil empire because the United States economic industrial jugular passed through the Middle East. There was no messing around. We needed that oil, period. Nothing would stop the United States from securing that oil and propping up the governments with whom they had deals. Now, in hindsight, looking at these relationships with these emerging nations, uh, there's questionable, dubious ethics involved, but we, we couldn't have it otherwise. And the Russians' job was basically to destabilize all of our stuff. Uh, and my daddy's job was to 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 combat their destabilization. Wow! Wow! I, can you believe we're still dealing with that kind of a thing though? Now, like how long after? Yeah, it's it's ridiculous that it's but everything I'm learning about it now. This my one of my friends is a um, she has a PhD in history and she kind of uh, this is a professor at Yale and uh, and she's dealing with all that kind of stuff, Russian you know history and all other shit. And she keeps telling me stuff and sending me stuff that. You know, I mean, we learned about some of it in school, but not to this extent. And everything that keeps going on, it's so weird. It's very parallel. It's yeah, all it doesn't the same have stuff. to be. You know, the, the, the end of the Cold War was supposed to be okay. Let's all get along. Yeah. And be mutually, uh, you know, make which we have done ever since mm -hmm. the end of the Cold War. The world has prospered all over Russia, China, America, Europe, everywhere. It's uh, South America, Africa, the world in without a world war going on, not even a Cold World War has prospered. So it is kind of a disaster that we have slipped back into that rivalry between East and West, between yeah. communism and capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's really crazy. I, I would love to ask you too, because I feel like the world is smaller for some people, right? So you've been all over, like traveling in, in your travel. Right? I haven't been to Russia. In fact, there's a lot of Eastern Europe I've never been to. Most really? of China. Uh, wow. The, See, the tragedy of this conflict is that if I were to go to Russia, I would probably love the people there. Yeah. You know, I've been to Beijing and various places in China. Mm -hmm. I love the Chinese people are really great people. Yeah. But, and yet our nations are in conflict, which which is uh, unfortunate. It's always five guys causing the problem. That's right. <laughs> you know, and then the rest of us have to suffer. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like sitting in a school class, right? Like there's always like one guy that's got to make a problem. Now the whole class is bad. But really... Yeah. It's just that guy, and we could all get along. Because that's what yeah. that, that was exactly what I was going to ask. I feel like the world, in general, people are people. Everybody just wants to be happy, love Absolutely. their family, get by, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, <laughs> I was actually just going to. I was going to ask. I love your background, by the way. So I was going to ask. Do you play? The, do you play constantly in that room? Is that? I do. That's uh, awesome. Over here is the computer where I work. Oh, where very nice. There, there. Where's the computer? Oh, the, the screens are off right now. But uh, yeah, this is the Sacred Grove, where my cool friends come over to hang and play. It's all all the drums, the keyboards, the, you know, the amps. They're all mic'd up and ready to go. Awesome. And so my chuckle buddies come over. Snoop Dogg, you know, Neil Peart used to come over, and wow. Taylor used to come over. Oh, um, you know, they come over here and pick up instruments, and we jam. And I also have <laughs> cameras around the room too. Uh, wow. So I just turned there. It was six hours of memory in them. I just turned them on, and then the next day I stagger in here and. What I get, right? And um, wow, one of the things is that after like a, a intense fifteen minute jam, let's play back because you know musicians love playback. Mm -hmm. And um, while we're playing back, hey, let's be a brass section. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, uh, you know, we all we all do the air tower of power, you know. And since they're musicians, I can say, hey, take a solo, sure. <laughs> and, and they don't know how to play the instrument but they do know what a solo would be so when i've had our fun and, and i can overdub because the cameras don't move there's no engineer or anything in here and i can overdub you know i got mm -hmm. snoop on the drums over there and then i give him a, a horn and he's over here and i got two snoops on the screen because oh. i with matting 
uh, I can overlay. And um, so, so I'd cool. create these things. And, and the, as for the bogus so, you know, saxophone solo or whatever, I could um, figure out what they would have played on, with MIDI in a mm -hmm. sax sample, sort of construct what they would have played if they had known how to get those notes. And then I pick up my saxophone and note by note build it. And you can find all these on on YouTube. Uh, Sacred Grove, you know. Sacred uh, Grove. I'm follow. I'm going to be following that right now. I feel like I how that. crazy is that? They're kind of fun. They're, they're, yeah. I, I just make them for fun. Put them for all the children to enjoy. Very nice. Um, and it's way too complicated with all the people just goofing off in here to, you know, <laughs> release an album or anything. But I I could definitely release an album of the jams we've had in here. Oh, man, I love that you have that recorded and all the other stuff, too, because I have such a, you know, we've had a bunch of other guests on and stuff like that, too. And it's funny when you see people and how they feel about posterity versus living in the moment. And I feel like you can combine those two and yeah. have both because well, it's definitely a moment in here. Exactly. Yes. And you're creating it. And it's important to have. I have, a, I have a, almost an advice question because, I, you know, obviously you've been doing this forever and you have that amazing Ask room. Stu Daddy. Yes, please. So here's, <laughs> so here's, here's my question because, you know, you've got that amazing room and, there, and you obviously love, you know, doing the matting, everything you were talking about, overlaying stuff and working with the cameras and getting all those people in there. How do you, you know, I, when you love what you do, which I like, I love going and doing stand up. I love being on tour. I love writing material. And now I've got this thing and I like editing and I like putting stuff together and making shit. Do you have to consciously separate the amount of time you spend technically working on stuff versus doing outside social habits? Cause I swear to God, man, I could spend. Oh, I just don't, I just don't do have any outside okay. social habits. Fantastic. Is that, I was going to say, is that <laughs> normal? Because that stuff. Yes. <laughs> like everybody like you, I'm sure. Uh, I've lost a lot of social stamina. Yeah. We same. don't go out to dinner parties anymore. And it's not for fear. It's mm -hmm. just because it's fear of people, not germs. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, I can do, I'm, I've been out doing shows and I really enjoy doing those. Yeah. But you know, for, for social, I, I kind of like zoom. Um, yep. I, I, I have my chuckle buddies. I go out on the bike path with on a Sunday morning, nice. a few other, things with really really close chuckle buddies but dinner mm -hmm. parties eh, not so much yeah you're I, i'm the same way man and i feel like i should like people are like you ever gonna cut your hair again or maybe you know shave i'm like no no well, put I'm on good. pants that's a that's an effort there you go exactly mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you're you're a fit guy you're in shape because uh, i bike and cycle and stuff like that too was that a recent hobby or you've been doing that forever I've been doing the bicycle. We go along the horizontal bike path next to the Pacific Ocean. There are no hills. There is no, the only exertion is kind of in the stomach muscles here from laughter and song. Uh, <laughs> crackpot theories, get rich quick schemes, uh, unlikely stories. Uh, it's basically just laughter and song because um, I read somewhere that friends who are not business associates or that you have no agenda with just, people you go hang out with for the, for the heck of it, they're good for your health and yes. they're good for your longevity. Mm -hmm. And so that's, 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 you know, I look at my, my, my crazy friends, they, dang, you guys are good for my health. I yeah. need you to be healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, I got to ask, cause I know you were talking about when you started your first band and stuff like that. Did you have somebody that um, triggered the music, like as far as like a, a band that you admired, somebody you saw on TV. What was the impetus to go? I want to be in a band. Gosh, um, my brother Ian, I was twelve, he was fourteen, was my agent back in Beirut. Wow! <laughs> and the band, the the Black Knights, um, who played the high school, the English high school, the American high school, the Italian high school, and all the cool joints. Uh, they were, um, they lost their drummer. So obviously Ian Copeland, who was the coolest kid on, on campus, they had mm -hmm. him, uh, but he, he actually couldn't play drums. Um, wow. so he got me the, the gig, uh, ah. with the black Knights and we played, uh, James Brown, um, kinks, uh, oh, and nice. music of that era. And then, so what was your first paid gig? Do you remember that? Now that you mention it, I'll bet you Pete Carneef got paid for those embassy gigs. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time to look him up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey. I'm glad I could bring you two I back together. I, I uh, played, you know, when I got to, to California, mm -hmm. uh, I played beer 
parties, keggers, but I don't know if any money changed hands there. Uh, my first jobs in, you know, that I got paid for was a roadie for Wishbone Ash, for Renaissance, for um, various different groups. Uh, I was, and then I was um, elevated to tour manager. I brought Joan Armour Trading on her first tour. Um, oh, wow. And then I finished off college at, at, uh, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Nice. Uh, and then, I, like I say, it's just calling me back. And I went back to London for summer, ended up joining a band, and the rest is... History. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible, man. And do you feel like those friendships you made on the road, even when you were doing roadies and stuff like that, like kind of shaped who you were as a person growing up? Uh, they shaped my concept of how you run a band. That's for sure. Right. I knew what the real issues were and I could hear what the musicians are griping about, which weren't the real issues and <laughs> what management was trying to get the band to do. And I could see, I could reach across this cultural divide between front office and band. Nice. Um, in fact, my first really professional band with a record co company and everything was, was Curved Air. And oh. they had had hits years before and I was kind of the last rat to jump aboard the sinking ship. <laughs> but it was a real band playing real gigs in front of real audiences, making mm -hmm. real money uh, with a road crew and everything. But I started out as the tour manager um, wow. uh, from long story, but uh, I was the tour manager. And then when their drummer, you know, at the end of, of this tour they did, he just said uh, he didn't want to anymore. And so I said, well, I play drums. <laughs> and I was dating the singer at the time. So uh, mother of my three sons. Very nice. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, Even better. And so, so I got the job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and it was downhill from there. Yeah. Did I, you, did, did that help you navigate management better? Like, did, did oh, you yeah. find, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the police famously had our shit together. Yeah, uh, and that was even before my older brother Miles kind of took over. First, it was just me with a, my Rolodex, booking the truck, booking the PA, hustling mm -hmm. for shows, selling records. Literally, myself on the phone to a record store in Birmingham or, or yeah. Liverpool, selling boxes of twenty-five records, and Sting and Henry and I stuffing them into sleeves. You know, because I didn't realize you're supposed to take the the, the picture disc sleeves to the factory that's making the record and they mm -hmm. will put the record into the sleeve. But uh, <laughs> so I got the first 2000 in white sleeves and there we were taking them out of that and putting them into this. Right. Um, and so, yes, then when things started to happen, actually I had a mini hit with Clark Kent, uh, very obscure, but it got us all on top of the pops. The first time the three blonde heads were on TV was actually as my backing band uh, <laughs> oh, nice. But uh, Old quickly stepped up and uh, took care of that little pissing match. Wow. Uh, and um, the police swallowed everything else in life. Right. Was there a moment in the police when you felt like you could see it? Because, again, you had more experience. You could see it coming. But what was the point where you were like, oh, this is we're going to pop. This is going to be huge. Pretty much every step of the way. Wow. Uh, Sting and Andy, when he joined, kept revealing more and more depth. Mm -hmm. When I first met Sting, I saw him as a bass player who could sing a bit. And that's mm -hmm. cool. One less person in the car. We could be a three-piece. That was always <laughs> my desire was for it to be a three-piece. I had a cool name. I had a manifesto. Yeah. We don't care about success and fame. <laughs> we just want to play the music of the uniform that we adopted as total mercenaries, oh, wow. uh, the punk uniform. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a laugh to read that manifesto now. Anyhow, <laughs> but I recruited him as, as a bass player who could sing. Cool, he can sing. Yeah. None of us, well, he probably knew, but I had no idea how incredibly he could sing. And the part that I, I suspect that not even he knew about was the songwriting part because he was in a jazz band pretty good jazz band actually called uh -huh. last exit and they were doing you know 15 minute uh creations real serious real complicated um and quite beautiful but it wasn't until the rigor of the punk music it shall mm -hmm. you know and the, the punk laws were very strict thou shalt not play more than two and a half minute song thou shalt not have a guitar solo thou shalt not sing about boys and girls it's got to be political all this stuff. Uh, but the discipline of getting it into two minutes, he landed on the good foot. And really, his musicality, which obviously had been there all along, yeah. funneled into that particular form 
suddenly that's when the sparks started to fly. Wow. And the first time, I can't remember what his first song he brought. It might have been Born in the 50s. Like, Whoa, let's play that. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that he'd come out with another. Hey, let's play that. Wow. And just each one. And he, every, with every one of them, he said, we're going to conquer the world. We are the coolest. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> and we thought that when we were groveling in the gutter. Um, wow. And I think that most bands will tell you that. that they wouldn't be in a band together if they didn't have that messianic determination and and being absolutely convinced that we <laughs> rule uh I, i'm pretty sure most bands feel that way for a band as huge as you guys were would you say the bonding came more from the writing process and the music or that time spent in a van on the road in a tour bus on a plane like where the it all friendships together it all, all meshes together. together the music and the hang all kind of go together i love like your energy like this has your energy always been like this positive like move forward because i feel like that's really what makes you such a success is that you believe that this is supposed to happen and you go out there and like you created your destiny you know uh i had cause to dig out my diaries from 1978 and 77 which is when the the last year of curved air and the first year of the couple of years of the police and i cannot believe woke up drove over to Andy's place, picked up the gear, drove over to Sting's place, picked up his gear, went over to the rehearsals place, rehearsed for 20 hours, then went down to the Marquee Club, then went over to the Roxy Club, then went over to the <laughs> other club, then drove up to Newcastle. Jesus Christ, I get exhausted. <laughs> I mean, those were really very busy times, desperate times, you might say. Absolutely. But did yeah. you, I feel like you pursued the passion. Did the money just follow? Well, but you do seem to have a tremendous business sense too. So was well, it? Well, we, we always broke even, uh, but we didn't necessarily get rich. We started to get to the point, you know, our first record was, you know, it got no airplay, uh, sold, I think at the time, it sold a lot more over the years, but at the time we, we sold those 2000 copies and I had money that I could divide three ways. We made money after uh, out of our first single um, that we made ourselves. I designed the single sleeve and, and so on, <clears throat> borrowed some money to record it. So we were always financially solvent, shall we say. But there mm. was a time, a, a particular day, when we were in America. We were in New York, and we got a phone call from London saying, boys, the money has dropped. You are now extremely wealthy, you don't say. <laughs> so we went over to... We went down to 57th Street, uh, was 47th Street, whichever, Manny's, uh, the big music store, and bought, let's say I'm going to have the regular, you know, the Roland Chorus Echo, that Fender amp there. I'm going to get me a Stratocaster and a bass. And uh, we just went wow. shopping that day and bought wow. half of the store. You know, Sting got a, a Stratocaster. I want one, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was an orgy. And, and our show that night was out on Long Beach. Um, at a place called My Father's Place. The sound check from hell. <laughs> oh, wow. With all of us playing with all our cool new toys. They, they, both of them got bait, Moog pedals, bass pedals. So, boom, 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 And I got, I got these delay. In fact, I still got them over here. I still got my chorus echo. And I was just screwing around with them, playing with all their toys. And um, so I put a microphone on the snare drum with the chorus echo, bat-da, 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 and I just kind of discovered this thing, and inspired kind of by by dub reggae, which is another long um, lecture. Uh, <laughs> We're here for it. Yeah, but um, I figured I could do that, and so I started playing with the slapback as a musical instrument, and um, that fad lasted me all the way through the rest of the police years. You, you know, a lot, a lot of police where you can hear that delay line, yeah. It doesn't just go bap, it goes bat bat. And so bat da and you build up these uh, complex rhythms. How, how was it always the interest in music that you had, you know, to play those instruments and stuff like that? Because it seems like you still have it. You seem like you're still interested in playing with new stuff and, and finding new shit to do. Is that just well, how do you keep that spark going? Uh the spark keeps me going. Um, every day I marvel, you know, uh, now my day job, I'm an opera composer. Yes. Uh, and an orchestrator and I, and I write music for symphony orchestra. Right. Uh, and every day I come here, I can't wait to finish breakfast, get in here, 
and get started on what I was working on last night. And I'm in my 70th year and it has not even begun to get old. It, I'm getting better and better. I think the, the gift that I had, I was born with. And it's interesting that I look back also looking at this 1978 period, my recordings that I did on a Revox A77 and a TIAC four track, that's exactly the same music personality that I have now that I'm writing symphonies. Um, but the chops are improved. The skills mm -hmm. are much developed, but it's the same gift, the same thing. Uh, I think that's probably true of most musicians. That you're born with your gift. All you got to do is develop it and work it. And in fact, yeah. I saw one of those aphorisms the other day. Uh, nothing works if you don't have the gift, but if you don't work the gift, ah, forget it. Never mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Did you? Okay, I got to ask this question because we've had a lot of guests on that have told us some ridiculous stuff about, let's say, when they got first got their money, they bought like a car they couldn't afford or drive or something ridiculous. Well, you I guys think all Joe bought Walsh instruments. Wrote the ultimate song about that. Yeah, yeah. I just got. I was thinking about my, riser, my Maserati, one ninety five, something, something, and now I don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. You guys went out and bought music, which is which musical instruments, which is pretty pra more practical than anything else. Did yeah, you spend we your also money on houses. I was gonna ask. Did and you guys? Then I buy bought horses. You know. <laughs> okay. All my money went on on horses rather than cocaine, but those nice. horses were more expensive, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. horses are pricey, pricey you, pieces. Did that force you to learn to ride? Did you already know to ride? Well, at that boarding school I was at, it was kind of a fancy boarding school, and nice. I learned how to ride there. In fact, learned how to play polo there, oh, wow. um, which is why I'm, you know, got all that money. I got the obligatory rock stars uh, estate in the country, and I'm there in the country. Well, I got to get me some horses, mm -hmm. and I got some horses and. Then I, oh yeah, the polo thing, and there was a polo club not far away. So I went down there and joined up. And wow. the next 12, 13 years, I was obsessed with it. And wow. I won the Archie David, you know. Oh, the uh, one one uh, one fourth of July. I'm still bragging on this decades <laughs> later. One fourth of July, I mm -hmm. was the most patriotic American on the planet because <laughs> I spent that afternoon in Buckinghamshire, England, aggressing directly upon British royalty in a game against <laughs> Prince Charles. He was uh, the back, the number four position. I was the number one position, which meant that he was my guy. My oh, job man. on that 4th of July was to get him off his game. And, uh, <laughs> and I did get some, I did elicit some, you know, I did get some foul language from those royal lips. Oh, bloody buggering hell. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a much better polo player than me. Um, oh, wow. We both had pretty good horses. Probably his were better. Mm -hmm. um, but I, by this time, I was shopping down in Argentina, and I was all about. It's all about the horse flesh, you know, about yeah. getting yeah. the best horses and working with them. And my job was to basically get in his way. And when my team <laughs> is going for the kill, I got to get him as the defense. He was the main defense, and I'm forward. I got to get him out of the way, um, so my guys could score. And so there I am. Take that, you know, Boston right. Tea Party. Huh. You know, <laughs> taxation without representation. Huh. You know. Oh my God. So so Game wait. of Thrones. Yes. I was gonna yeah, yeah, the original Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh my god. What so I can't imagine you're shy around people. You know what I mean? Because again, all the people that you named so far, was there somebody that you were starstruck though when you were younger, when you were doing it, that you maybe were afraid to go up to or were like, holy shit, I can't believe it's blank this guy or were you just like nope yeah we're the police absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. those who came before me are my boss i serve right. them i bow down before one well, you know the bass player in the pretty things is my yeah. superior is mm -hmm. above me because he came before and that's how musicians yeah. do it we it's very simple mm -hmm. we you know like dogs relax once they know where everyone's position is in the hierarchy. If they're at the bottom, the top, the middle, doesn't matter as long as it's established and we can all get along. So a musician in music, um, it's a chronology. Whoever went first is boss. Nice. Whoever comes after serves. And it's an amazing thing that, you know, I, I regard the Beatles as Beatles, but yeah. the bands who came after me who were 16 in my glory days, they treat me like I'm a Beatle. Is there anybody you, that you... you were ranked one of the best drummers ever mm -hmm. by Rolling Stone, right? That's a, well, that's a... the fact that Buddy Rich wasn't even on that list makes it a little dubious. But I will yeah. take it, sure. 
and you surround yourself. You, you had mentioned earlier, because we did lose a great drummer, uh, that he was one of your close friends and part of this inner circle that used to play in this room right here. It's been open season on drummers. You know, it seems like a very short period that Ginger Baker, Neil Peart, Charlie Watts, and now Taylor. Mm. And it's just not right. It, you know, Neil Peart and Ginger Baker, one of the last recordings he did was right there. He came over yeah. one afternoon and he was kind of ailing. He was here with his daughter. He played for one minute, which is, by the way, is on YouTube, The Sacred Grove. Wow. And then he sort of finished, and 20 minutes later, the paramedics arrived uh, wow. and wanted to take him to hospital. He, oh, you can, oh, fuck, oh, I'm not going to know, fucking old spit, oh, he said <laughs> in its kindly tones. Uh, <laughs> but Neil, he knew it was coming. In fact, it took about two years longer than expected. At one point, he says, dude, I am past my sell-by date by a year. And then he, he carried on for another year. But so he saw it coming. He made his piece. He was all adjusted and everybody, you know, his close friends were with him. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was it was really a first class ticket. He saw his train coming. Um, but Taylor, for God's sake, that guy was so pulsing with life. So yeah. here now, it's just vibrant, so unstoppable that it was really a shock. For me personally, I just finished. I just come off stage with the National Symphony. Uh, uh, great show. I'm all pumped up. And I get this news right as the endorphins are squirting out of every pore. I yeah. get that news. I just couldn't believe it. There's a you know reception afterwards, room full of people. Hey, 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 you're great. You know, I had to kind of just like not believe it until I got back to my room. Oh, God. No, no. It's just ain't right. right you yeah. know? Uh, and all the people who knew him, his buddies, of which there were many, uh, were all just texting back and forth going, what the fuck? Yeah. You know? It's so right. much outpouring of love, too, though. You know, I mean, it's every time somebody like that passes away, it's crazy. Because I'm, I'm sure his inner circle and his close friends and people like yourselves and whatever, you know, you express that kind of thing. Do you feel when that happens, you're like, God, I wish they could have seen this kind of thing, you know, when they were alive, I, it's, it's a feeling I sometimes have, but you know, comics that pass and stuff like that, which when all these great stories come out, I'm like, did they know, you know, did they know they touched everybody's life this way? I think the least, the one with the least idea of how important he was would be Taylor. Mm. I mean, Neil knew that he was a professor and right. that, you know, all he had to do is play a show and there's 80,000 people air drumming every lick. Uh, and same with Charlie and same with um, Ginger Baker. Uh, yeah. But Taylor was such a fanboy, <laughs> it never crossed his mind that he himself yeah. is a big deal. Because he, you know, whenever I'd hang out with him, he'd be wearing his police T-shirt. You know, <laughs> That's awesome. That's hang so out cool. With Neil and he's wearing his, his Rush T-shirt. He, he just was a, he, he just kind of, he was lit up by the whole thing of it. And I yeah. uh, really enjoyed it. Wow. But both him and Dave and the rest of them, not, you know, and uh, uh, the rest of them, they're, they're absolutely a very humble band, uh, right. and which makes them a very easy hang. Do you, is it an impetus to call us? Like, did you talk to Dave right when it happened? Do you, do you make that phone call? Do you give people space when it happens? Space. Space is best. Space is best. He's got yeah. people calling. I've got people calling. Yeah. Uh, I could use some space, but nothing like Dave's going through. Right. And there's another thing that I, I remember with Neil, when he first passed, I got a call from his roadie that afternoon. And that night, uh, they all, the band, uh, family, crew, gathered at a restaurant um, in Venice Beach. And I was, I had seen it coming. I felt that it was a full ride, a full life, well lived. And I was full of, you know, I, I, I I was I was kind of upbeat about it, but mm. I get there and the people who are with because I just hang out with them occasionally. But the people who are, who he's in their lives every day, yeah. uh, his wife, his his crew, the you know Alex and Getty, they were just you know blown away. Even though they also saw it coming, but just this this hole in their life suddenly. Okay, cut to two weeks later, the memorial service. By now, it's sunk in. The professor is gone. 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, the no more hang at the Bubba cave, you know, yeah. and it really started to get to me and at the memorial, his family and closer people had kind of begun to de- deal with it and were able to smile again at the memory of his life. Um, and there was, uh, in fact, there was, um, you know, Dwayne, uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jethro Tull's drummer and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Taylor, Chad Smith, um, Danny, Danny, um, Danny Carey. Right. Yeah. I'm a crap name dropper because I can never remember any of my best friend's <laughs> names. I would be, I would be absolutely terrible. I can just remember that guy who played in. Uh, right. we'll, we'll, we'll blame it on the curse of this show. Lamenting, you know, yeah. we all kind of were feeling it by that time, whereas right. Getty and Alex were kind of comforting us by that time. Right. We'll blame that on the curse of the show, by the way. Literally every guest we've had on is cannot remember one very obvious thing. I do the same shit. I don't know what it is, but it's time of day or whatever it is. But everyone's like, what's my mother's name? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's weird. I got it. So I love hearing, you know, it's it's beautiful to know that like the people that you admire, the bands you love, the musicians you love all have a genuine appreciation for each other. Like that's yeah. so hard. Well, particularly you know. drummers. Right. Yeah. That's a tight knit yeah. group. Is Drummers there... get along much better amongst ourselves than guitarists do. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Higher competition with guitarists. How many? How many uh, guitarists does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> how many? Any how number. Many? One to do it, and the other guys to say, "Well, I could have done that much better." <laughs> um, I was gonna I was gonna ask though, like you know, because you guys all love each other and and have such a high appreciation for each other, is it? Uh, it's got to be awesome to see somebody that you appreciate in the audience watching you or backstage they came to visit. Is there anybody that yeah. you would, is there anybody that you would say that you that didn't get to see you perform yet or, or, or may never get to see you perform that you wish was there? Well, I, when I was a kid, I used to dream of going into the music store to buy some drumsticks and looking over, Whoa, there's Jimi Hendrix. And Jimmy <laughs> notices me trying out a snare drum says, Hey kid, you're good. Why don't you come back to my place and let's jam? You know, that was my uh, fantasy. Yeah. Um, What's amazing is you like you say that, and now you've actually created that space where you're doing that to somebody Come on else. back and jam, kiddo. Love you that. You look like you've got talent. Right? That's yeah. amazing. Um, do you, do you, are you kids like interested in music? Do they want to go into it? Would you recommend it? Would you help them? Would you stay out of the way? What's your fatherly and musicianly advice? I have seven children. Mm-hmm. Um, and only one and a half of them, uh, <laughs> have the gift. And the, the one who really has the gift, who just picks up any instrument that belongs to him and beautiful things come out. He's a filmmaker. Oh, wow. Uh, and still has that. He had a band, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he actually has two children to feed my grandchildren. Oh, uh, nice. and so he, so he, he, he's got a post-production empire. Do you wait for them to come to you just for advice for stuff, or do you do you kind of impart it on them naturally? Kidding! I, I lay it on them with a trowel. <laughs> Arise, my sons, awake! Take the destiny that is yours. Your name is being called unto the heavens. Take your destiny. What is yours? Rise up, my sons, dad. I'm just my dad. Oh yeah, that's a father's that. job, you know. Yeah. Uh, did you ever want to act? Did you ever want to go into acting, be an actor? Because you're some filmmaker. I had that opportunity, and I suck. I did not get that suck. particular gift. What? This is, but this is insane. I'm watching posing, you do posing. Yeah, I can do the posing. Okay, acting, okay. Acting, uh, not convincing. But, but your son wants to put you in a film. What do you say? As long as the character is me. Okay. I was gonna say written around you, where it's just your personality. Yeah, and... I mean, I can ham it up like. But acting does take a particular gift, which right. the good Lord did not bestow upon me. Gotcha. Actually, the other one that I did not get, which is really strange, is pianitude. I can play guitars, fake it on most instruments, except for the piano, the wow. keyboards, uh, <laughs> which is ironic because I spend all day, every day, entering notes on a keyboard. That's how I compose, is with a keyboard. What? Okay, I'm just going to enter a bass drum pedal, a bass drum hit right here. Okay, hit record. Boom. Fuck. Undo. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing three, four. Fuck. Undo. You know. <laughs> Is there an instrument somebody would be surprised that you play that nobody may know? 
Well, writing opera usually stops the conversation. Yeah, that was I. I okay. If I hadn't read that in advance, I feel like I would have been like, uh, "Come again." That's that's phenomenal. How did you stumble into that? Well, um, I got an inf well. My first film was Rumblefish for Francis Ford Coppola, and mm -hmm. the fight director on that film, this being the way Francis works, mm -hmm. was the uh, the director of the San Francisco Ballet. So he got this incredibly balletic fight sequence, which was really cool. And uh, I, you know, the guy was impressed with the music and he invited me to write a ballet for the San Francisco Ballet, which wow. I did. And he was probably expecting me to come in with some kind of rock riffs, but I was raised on Stravinsky and always had orchestral music going around in my head. And so I showed up with an orchestral score. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, let's be frank, an abomination um <laughs> and i got torn to shreds by the san francisco chronicle or whatever the paper was i, I yeah. still have it it's absolutely that journalist was incensed and oh. mostly but there were three bars that didn't suck that were mm. actually kind of cool and that was enough to make me think i want to do this and uh wow. in a press promo for that somebody said copeland are you gonna write another ballet and i just pissing around <laughs> when i finish my opera okay i get a call from the cleveland opera saying when you finish your opera could we have a look at it <laughs> so wow. I, I bonded with them it actually took four years to write that one kind of wow. under the tutelage of david Berm bamberger the uh the director of the opera company mm -hmm. um and that is the most fun a composer can have with his clothes on um wow. And film composing, it's not really art, it's craft. I'm there to serve the art. I, I don't do it anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. But when I was doing that, a hired gun, flinty-eyed professional. You want happy? I'll give you happy. You want sad? <laughs> oh, you want happy, sad? <laughs> I got that. And you, I, I humbly suggest that the film composer has the widest set of musical skills, because he has to. He can mm -hmm. do classical, he can do jazz, he can do electronic, period stuff, future stuff. Everything, every happy, sad, everything, wow. uh, because you have to. And the film composing forced me to learn how to work with orchestra. And um, because that's how it sounds like a movie. And I just on the job picked up the chops. Actually, since you since you mentioned it, mm -hmm. this here is the result. Oh, my God. Check it out. This phenomenal little hot there we go oh my god and it is actual music wow that wow, is incredible man oh my god don't tell anybody but i'm sending that to stingo i oh, <laughs> nice. what's the biggest working challenge out of the out of the stuff that you've done eclectically would you say you've you've kind of had to not, I don't want to say suffer through. That's the wrong word because you seem enthusiastic about everything. But what's the what's the hardest thing you've done that you wound up overcoming and enjoy? You know now. Well, the physicality of drums was a mm. big problem when we did the police reunion tour. That was two and a half hours of chopping wood, wow. and because there's just three of us, and because the expectations were high, um, you got to get it right. It's got to be huge, and mm -hmm. just the calories burned. By the end of that, it was it was a almost two years. By the end of that, I was losing fingers. It was just the physical damage was hell. Right. But this orchestral thing where I play with orchestra, in fact, I do the police music all deranged and messed up for <laughs> orchestra, and I have three soul sisters on the mic, my derangettes, and I so love my derangettes, or we call them <laughs> the dejettes. Uh, uh, I have to play so quietly with the orchestra that I've developed a whole technique of because they're acoustic and mm. my drum is designed my instrument is designed to compete with heavy amplification mm -hmm, so yes. to play quietly has taken me years but i'm getting there and i still slam but at a much lower volume i don't break my wrists right the drums sound amazing when you're not killing them mm -hmm. and nobody gets a headache nice it's a very different technique but actually i I've got more cool slick shit going on, right? That I, you know, because playing with a band, you have, you know, a lot of the subtleties. And believe it or not, folks, there are subtleties in a drum set. <laughs> of course, uh, 
you can't just have no place in rock and roll, but they do in an orchestral environment. Nice. Do you, do you um, favor one more than the other as opposed to, let's say, working collaborative, collaboratively with people or by yourself? I love them both. I am a collaborative person. I'm, I am a youngest sibling. I am happy. Um, Sting was the oldest sibling, so mm. he assumed that I was jealous and whatever, you know. Right. We've since worked it out. We've hugged right. it out. Nice. Uh, nothing could be <laughs> No, I like being on the team. In the back is fine for me. I was always the youngest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the most junior member of whatever the team was, but happy to do my thing and just be on the team was good enough for me. Yeah, uh, That's the way I feel about bands in general. But also, one reason why I appreciate Sting a lot more is that when I work with the orchestra, I tell them every single note to play. Not mm -hmm. only that, but how they play it. It's not da-da-da-da-da-da. It's mm -hmm. da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, uh, and I you you shape that with the articulations. You put more ink on the page, and right. and so when I go to play a show, I know exactly where they are, so I can go wherever I want to go because nice. I can count on them. And it, like a singer in a band needs to have a solid foundation so that they can fly. Yeah. I'm the wrong guy for that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just having too much fun doing my thing, and singers got to. Where's one? <laughs> you know. Uh, is it hard to transition between the two? Like, to take time? Because I find, like, well, if I'm in a writer's... show is uh, Oysterhead, ah. which is the opposite. We walk out there and just make shit up. And that <laughs> fan base, uh, which is mainly Trey Anastasio's fan base, you know, mm -hmm. and also um, Les Claypool, mm. that's what they come for. They want to hear something that has never happened before. It was created mm. for them on that night. Mm. And it'll never be heard again. It was, you know, it was made right there in front of them. And there is a buzz to that. The musicians feel that buzz of coming and, and we're dead in the water sometimes. And that's part of it. There are times when we're just like dead in the water and my pop sensibilities are horrified. Ah! <laughs> but I look down at the front rows and they're loving it. It's proof that yeah. we're just making this shit up. Ah, that's what beautiful. they came for. Yeah. And those surges when, you know, Les Claypool comes out, he finds it. Okay. I got a lot. Okay. I can lay And then Trey takes off and we lift and we surge and the audience goes bananas for that kind of, that's what they are coming for. And that's what Oysterhead is all about. That surge of a new discovery. And let's see where this rocket ship is going to float. Oh my God. Well, I, I, I don't know, Tom, do we have, I know we have a bunch of comments. Do we, we have, have a ton of people? Well, I'm getting hoarse actually. I think I'm ready. We're going to, we're wrapping it out. Yeah, we're going to wrap. We just have <laughs> yeah, a couple comments and questions from the crowd because you have a tremendous fan base that's been checking in with us from all over the world. They love you. Missouri, Ohio, New Zealand, West Hollywood, LA, they're Argentina, all over. So yeah. we, I asked them to give us a few questions so we could address them, and I would just love to do it. First, I'd like to bring up, this was a great comment that you said, yay, Stewie, it's so nice. What a mensch you are, and so nice to all of your fans. And uh, here come, right? And somebody asked, what is your biggest musical hero or influence? Uh, I'd have to split that uh, accolade between uh, Igor Stravinsky and Jimi Hendrix. Nice. Love it. Stravinsky and Hendrix. What police song tripped you you up the most? From Spirits in the Material World. I hate playing that song. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it's one of people's favorites, so I got it. It is. But it's on the knife's edge. It's all my fault. Uh, hide the one. There's no one. You know, three, four. <laughs> and you have to stay on this upbeat. And sometimes the orchestra, they don't get that upbeat. Right. And so the guitarist has got it, Rusty Anderson. Um, yep. who I borrowed from Paul McCartney, he has wow. that in with the band, but it's still right on the edge uh, of disaster. Wow! And the the, the Jets, God bless them, they're <laughs> owning it and they're kind of wafting around the beat. So don't listen to the singers, or we'll be lost. <laughs> and I haven't fallen off the cliff yet, but I know I'm gonna. <laughs> That's great. And what police song was your favorite to play? Can't Stand Losing You, because Ooh. it, it ev evolved into an, uh, a jam, yeah. which became a track on the next album called Regatta de Blanc. Um, and it's just a call and response thing with that. That's always a, that's always a great fun show closer. Awesome. 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 And then we had a couple of quick comments. Somebody had mentioned bah, 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 bah. they would like you to if you would like to bring it to the Ben-Hur concert to Italy, it would be great in the ancient theater in Taramina. Love it. I'd love to venue. do that. I'm, I'm working on that. Yeah. Are you? Perfect. That's a cool, that's definitely a cool one. 
DJ Triple Triple N Gen from West Hollywood said, "You are so awesome." Will you be talking about Clark Kent or Clark Cunt? <laughs> Is, I don't know, know where hey, that came hey, from. Hey, watch the language there. Yeah, what? <laughs> See, if they weren't from West Hollywood and they were from England, I would say that's normal. That's not a bad That's not a bad deal. <laughs> and I think that is the majority of it. And we had one more suggestion that there was a little girl over in England. Well, I'll pull up that name before we go, and that'll be our last one. Yeah. Uh, um, you can hear them with three big ones. So, uh, Deb Star Divine Stewart, you have such... You should have an amazing little girl named Nandi Bushel in Sacred Grove. So Nandi Bushel, we're giving her the chance for you to be her Jimi Hendrix. He'll take that into consideration. There we go. I will indeed. Um, Hold down, Nandi. <laughs> we have, there we are. We have three questions we ask every guest. I'm just going to fire them at you. The first one is, if you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, give yourself a piece of advice that would help you today, what would it be? Yeah, oh yeah, I do that. Relax. Nice. Somebody asked me, how come you got so much energy? And I know the answer to that one. It's relax. Right. Particularly, you know, specifically on drums, but also in life. Right. The more you relax, the more power you have. Yeah. It's absolutely. a real simple equation. And it, I didn't figure that out until embarrassingly recently. Oh, it's hard to tell yourself to take the time because if you feel like you do, you're going to, you're not working or you're not, you're missing out or, or you know, well, the you're thing not is that, that work that you're trying to do. You can do it much better, much more profoundly if you're relaxed. Absolutely. Um, second question is, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Breaking up the police. Yeah. It had to end. Yeah. So that we could all three of us go and climb new mountains and do cool new stuff. You know, because when we were in the police, it was like a golden cage. Mm -hmm. You know, Sting wanted to go act in movies. Hey, you're probably going to suck as an actor. You know, <laughs> uh, I wanted to do film score work. Mm -hmm. uh, no money in it. Um, right. And so whatever we wanted to do was kind of iced out. And so we had to melt down the golden cage to be free. <laughs> and in fact, I think Stingo put it very well when he said, if you love somebody, set them free. Nice. That's great. Um, I, I, I read, sorry, before you hit that last question, I read that uh, the disagreement between you two was that you found music to be a celebration. I don't know how true this is, like if that was the true information. And he found it as an escape. So I feel like... That's true. That is true? Yeah, well, I, you know, music has a different place in his life. He's a very... We are not birds of a feather. Mm, and we yeah. understand that now. And the purpose of music... For me, it's like, let's burn the house down. Let's light it all up. For him, it's a beautiful place of, 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 of comfort and beauty and serenity. And then that fucking Copeland comes in banging shit. And, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That um, is great. And then, I'm sorry, John. One more thing, because they just keep asking the chat. Uh, they wanted to hear you talk a little bit about Bob Garcia, because they had lost him, and that was... Bob Garcia was the man at the record company who discovered us after we were already signed. Um, by the English record company, which signed the police as an adjunct of Clark Kent. I had a hit with Clark Kent, and they said, let's sign this guy up and get his band too. Uh, and we all know how that worked out. Mm. Um, but then we came over to tour America, but the American record company had no idea what we were doing there. And guys, guys, we're not, you know, you don't even come over, but we came over and we were doing stuff. And Bob Garcia was the first guy from AM Records to, to come out to a show somewhere very obscure and say, dang. And he went back to LA and talked to Jerry Moss, the bot, you know, the M of AM Records, yeah. and Herb Albert, the A of AM Records, wow. and said, We've got a phenomenon. You know, stand up, you know, 10 hut. This is huge. And they went from being a non record company, wondering why we were even there to suddenly being the best record company in the world. And they were very, they had the smallest roster with the highest uh, um, percentage of hits because mm -hmm. they stuck with acts and they were amazing. But it was Bob Garcia who kind of introduced the police to A&M Records. Wow. And he was wow. also a great guy. Um, and the, the last question ties in with the, the theme of the whole show. So if this was a genuine dystopia and alien zombies, uh, meteor heading to earth, climate change, floods, 
Everybody knows it's, it's all their happening lap. here in California. We got. I was going to say <laughs> it's kind of that's why I did the show. It's kind of close. <laughs> We're all there. If if this if everybody knew it was their last day, how does Stuart Copeland spend his last day? What's your epic death? How do you want to go out? Uh, with my family, with my kitties and my grandkitties and my wife Fiona and and um, I don't know. Everybody picking up an instrument. I just being with the people I love. Nice. Because I am a man of love. <laughs> and remember, all of you listeners, remember love. Hmm. That's what Clark Kent advises. And it sounds simple, but the loving part is easy. It's the remembering that's tricky. Ooh. You know, somebody cuts you up on traffic. Hey, I love you. <laughs> love it. I love that. Very nice, man. Thank you so, so much for coming on and spending time with us. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, we truly appreciate you joining us. Thanks so Remember much, Remember love. We will. We will. We will. <laughs>